Well, the mud is settled, Roubaix is done, Lombardia, all the big races. This is the final podcast of the year. The season's wrapping up. I've had one too many beers and it's a nice time of year. Lionel, how are you doing? Very well, thanks, Mitch. I haven't had a beer yet. Maybe I, I feel like I've, I've missed the spirit of the occasion. I should have opened a beer this evening. <laughs> I do find it funny that all the people around me sort of roll, who aren't pros, roll into this off-season feel and, uh, you know, end up cracking one too many just because they're like, well, everyone else is doing it. And I'm like, hang on, is it your off-season too? Ah, <laughs> oh, screw it. Just, just, just get in on it. You know, like, this is great. I love this vibe. And at the end of the day, it's not really my off-season but I'm still treating it like it is. You know, it's my forever off season at this point. Well, as you're about to find out, Mitch, retirement uh, puts you back into the real world and there's no such thing as an off season in the real world, let me tell you. I know, I know, what a dreadful thing, I know. It's just like, this is my last off season ever. I can't believe it. Or potentially I can sneak in many off seasons during, during my career, I don't know. That's what this podcast is all about. You know, if anyone out there doesn't know, I'm going to be retiring this year. Well, I have done my last race, Paris-Roubaix being my last race. And I'll see, I'll finish at the end of this year with uh, EF as a contracted rider. And that'll be it. You know, I'm, I'm out into the wilderness. But I thought before I did do that, why don't I speak to people who have been out in the wilderness, ex-professionals, and have a chat to them um, about what it's like to be set free and what it's like on the other side of the fence. What a great idea. I mean, it's uh, almost your uh, transition from being a pro athlete into retirement. So who are we going to hear from in this episode, Mitch? Well, I haven't picked, maybe you guys might be sitting back there thinking, you know, is he going to talk to this guy, talk to that guy? I've actually sat back and thought about one, people who are very um, important to me in my career, but also people that I respected about how they transitioned, or so what I thought, transitioned into that next phase. Um, you know, I've spoken to people who have retired very, like very close to their end of their career. And the first one being TJ Van Garderen. He's an ex, ex teammate of mine. He retired just in the middle of this year. And I thought out on a ride with him, it'd be great to chat to him about because he had those really fresh thoughts about what it was like to be pro just a couple of months ago and what it's already like on the other side. I spoke to my good friend, Swain Tuft, who's been retired now for two years and he's just a great guy who has a really holistic view on everything. And I thought, well, I've got to speak to Swaino about what it's like. Even though I'd spoken to him a lot about it, I thought, let's get him on there and just get his ideas. Another good friend of mine, a German rider, Robert Wagner, he rode with me on Skill Shimano, but we stayed close friends throughout my career. And we just, that connection I had with him, I respected so much him as a teammate and also just his opinion as a friend. He transitioned about three years ago and he went to Yombo Visma as a sports director in the development team. So he's on there too. It's great to speak to him. I spoke to Gracie Elvin, who I had a great connection with her when she was on Orica and I was on there too. She retired last year and she's back in Australia now. So I thought that'd be great to get her little insight as well. Dom Rowland, I don't know if everyone out there is going to know Dom, but Dom's a Canadian and I loved what he has done after his career. He went on to be in culinary school and has become a qualified chef. He didn't follow the normal route of, you know, I want to say normal, that's because I only am familiar with the people who are still in the peloton, sports directors or, you know, managers or whatever it is. I love that I could still get in touch with Dom 
because he's actually taken a different route. And I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to hear what his thoughts are. I've got David Miller on there. He's always got a really, really good way of putting thoughts into words. Brett Lancaster, he was an ex-teammate of mine, now a director on Sky, or Ineos, sorry, I keep calling him that. He's a good friend of mine, and I respected him so much throughout my career, and I've had a really good chance to watch him closely in his transition and some hard moments. And because we're close friends, we live here closely, so it'd be really good to hear his thoughts about what that little transition was like. And lastly, I thought I've got to get someone from the older times, not too old, but a little while ago, my sports director, Andreas Clear, and I just heard his story one day in the bus, or maybe it was in the hotel. He told me about the way he decided to retire. I just thought it was so interesting, but I respect him so much as a sports director and as a person. I knew he'd have some really good insights. Well, Mitch, I hope you were taking notes as everyone was giving you their advice on how to cope with retiring from professional sport. Well, the best part about it was, actually, it was you and I talking way back in Trowbury Leon. And I was telling you, I need something to really connect to into this next phase of my life. I need something to connect to in these podcasts. I need to talk to someone that I'm really interested in to try and pick their brains about what I want to know as well. And you came up with this idea, why don't we talk about retirement? It was very early on. And actually, we started recording way back then. When I say we, I did. I, I went out and I reached out to these these guys that I've spoken to you about, and I picked them off one one month at a time. And the best part about that was I was in a different headspace this whole time throughout this year. And it was great checking in with all these ex-pros and hearing those thoughts and actually being able to take that in and sort of use it in a way in my last races and in my last season and also put some stuff in my backpack for next year. Guys, without further ado, I'm gonna let you listen to this episode and see if you can take anything on or just find out something about what this weird transition is like for professional sportsmen who essentially retire in the middle of their life. So, I'm speaking with David Miller. Hello, Mitch. When was the moment that you knew you were going to be pro? Like that moment when you're like, oh, shit, I'm actually going to be pro now. Can you remember that moment and what was it like? Probably when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, I decided not to go to art college in 1996, no, 1995. I came back from Hong Kong. And the deal I made with my mum was that I'm going to spend a year and I'll turn pro. And if I don't, I'll go back to art college. was just so absolutely completely convinced I was going to do it that I did it I was very fortunate I won a lot of races pretty early on I was living in the north of France and all of a sudden these proteins started coming up to me and Cyril Guimard came and took me out for lunch and at that point I knew what was going to happen so I had the choice of which team I was going to go to it's a good question I think there was never one standout moment but lots of little moments that all added up Hi, I'm Gracie Elvin. I was a pro cyclist for about nine years. I rode for Mitchelton Scott. I remember as a junior cyclist, I actually wasn't very good. I 
I was probably last in most races. I got dropped on the first climb, but I, I just never had any doubt that I wasn't going to do it, which was really odd in hindsight to, to remember how I felt back then in my mid-teens to be just loving it and just watching the Tour de France every year, not realizing it was only men, just showing up to races, getting spanked, but still loving it and getting a little bit better every time. And it felt so right. Hi, I'm Dominique Rollin. I'm from Canada. I used to be a pro cyclist, I think, at one point of my life. I've raced pro eight years. While doing my exams in culinary school, I got a phone call from a famous sport director, Cyril Guimard, who was running at the time a small club that now turned pro, uh, VC Roubaix. So he just called me up as I'm in the middle of the exam and just asked me, he's like, we need a rider for next year. So in my mind, is like, okay. So I either stay off the bike and carry on with the culinary uh, that I, I was really enjoying at the moment or put that on hold and follow my dream and last chance to turn pro and went on to that. TJ Van Garderen, this might sound arrogant, but ever since I was like 12 years old, I, I had this vision and I didn't actually give myself any other alternative but to be a pro, pro cyclist. Like, I was I was working jobs. I was mowing lawns. I was uh, you know I was being a janitor at the salon my mom used to work at. I was uh, I was working at a at a bike shop all just to raise money to, for gas money to go to nationals. All with the vision of I'm going to be a pro cyclist one day. Sitting down here with Brett Lancaster, good friend of mine. Welcome back to the podcast, mate. Thanks, buddy. It was a bit of a journey because you got to think the year before I was in Belgium, I was living in Melbourne, working in a uh, skate shop or ski shop, setting up binding settings for people going up to the Alps in, in Victoria. Took 10 months off because my head was stuffed from three years with Charlie and the track program. We did nothing in the uh, Sydney Olympics. We trained so much that I missed racing mm. and I just didn't like cycling anymore because it was just all about the training. So did a reset that year. Got back, won a stage of the Sun Tour, went to Belgium the year after, won a few races, then went to um, on to Panaria. Yeah, look, it was minimum wage, although for me then it didn't matter. No. You know, I was doing San Remo that next year and the Giro, mm. you know, straight in there. My name is Robert Wagner. I've been a professional cyclist from, I think, 2006 until uh, 2019. For me, I started cycling at the age of 10. I wanted to be a professional cyclist. Huh? My idols uh, at this time were Miguel Indurain and uh, later, of course, Jan Ulrich. And I always had this dream and this goal, uh, I would, I will be a professional cyclist. Hi, my name's Swain Tuft. I rode as a professional from 1999 to 2019. For me, the one that stands out, like if I just think really quickly about that, Tour de Bosa is like North America's or Canada's big stage race. And, and there's a lot of European teams there. And there's always like a really strong North American. So Mercury at the time, Saturn, these kinds of teams, they were the big deal. And I was on the, the national team uh, racing with a bunch of characters. And it was this final stage, hilly circuit, pissing rain. And I rode away solo and won the stage like with a bunch of, you know, hardened kind of veteran types chasing from behind. And uh, that was a moment I thought, okay, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'll be okay at this sport. My name is Andreas Clear. I have been a pro cyclist for about 18 years. Uh, I was tour of Mallorca. The race started and somehow um, uh, we hit some side wind down up there in the north in, in Poyenza. 
And everybody was fighting for the spot there to, to be safe. And uh, I remember Mapai threw it in the, into the gutter. And um, then it was between Zabel and myself. And in that time, I was quite fat. I somehow pushed him off the road and he didn't make it. I only got second in the sprint behind Stales. But while I was washing my legs after the race with a towel, uh, a guy came and said, you have the leader's jersey. So in that time, you still had leader's jersey. In the end of the day, during that race, Case Prem, a guy, TBM Farm Frights manager, gave me his card, said I should call him. And he said, okay, uh, you can race for us. And I signed a contract. And yeah, I remember that very well. So it was a tour of Mallorca, uh, which, which gave me basically uh, the, final, uh, the final confirmation that I will be a pro. When did the penny drop? And what I mean by that is some guys have the penny drop moment. They're in the race. Oh, they get dropped. They're like, nah, that's it. I'm done. Mm. Or for you, when was the moment when you knew enough's enough? Yeah, it's a weird one, that one, because it doesn't happen at once. Externally and with hindsight, the ascending spiral takes longer to kind of to get to that plateau, that peak, to assume all the the kudos and respect and the worth of being a recognized, successful, accomplished professional cyclist takes many years. But equally, it actually happens really quickly that you lose that. Mm. But you don't know that when you're in it. You, you still think it's all okay and it takes you a long time to realize, but it, it's essentially you fall off a cliff. You know what it was? Winter of 2012, I started to find training really difficult mm. all of a sudden. And I'd never, I was like such a hard worker and Love, I genuinely loved it. I loved bike racing. I loved all of it. And then all of a sudden I found in the winter of 2012 that the magic had gone and I was losing it. And I was, what, I was 35. 2013, kept racing. And through the season of 2013, I couldn't hurt myself anymore. Mm. And I used to love just smashing myself and also ripping everybody else up. And so it was the end of 2013. I think in the end of season, I announced that 2014 would be my final year. Mm. So I was still had, I was on a two-year contract. So I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. But I was still going in for all guns blazing, trying my hardest to be good for 2014. But then it just all, just all went to shit, unfortunately. Do yeah. you think it was good for you knowing the whole year that you were going to retire? Because some people think maybe that will affect their performance, knowing they're going to stop already the whole year. Or it was nice to have a swan song goodbye yeah i was hoped it would be maybe a bit egotistical or maybe i, I did actually one of the reasons i announced it because i thought well this is what i need if i give myself a kick up the ass and know it's the final year i will go around and and it won't just be a swung song it means i'll try harder because mm. you know it's a lot every time i go to every single race i mean i did paris roubaix in my final year and it was the only time i ever finished paris roubaix and because i knew it by my last one and i was aiming everything for the tour de france so i wanted to win the final stage i had the commonwealth games in scotland i wanted to try and get a gold medal there in the road race on the time trial and so i had all these objectives but one by one they fell apart and it was it was my own doing as well because i just and that's i guess so in that way it was it was kind of good because when I announced my retirement and made the big decision, even kind of that social contract of public, publicly saying it, like like you did this year, is you need to social do that. Social contract, it's, I like that word. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's a social contract. You you need it to kind of people. It's like putting a flag up. It's a bit of a white flag, but it's also there's some pride in it and saying mm. I'm out and I want everyone to know. And so I did that, and I, I bound myself to that social contract, so I couldn't back out. 
and but at the same time perhaps that put too much I put too much pressure on myself I, I never did anything I, I realise now looking back that I only did it because I loved it and I think towards the end I fell out of love with it mm. and so there was no social contract big enough to, to kind of make me ride better or, or be better I was the same as well with money and bonuses they never had effect for me with racing because it was just so innate the love and I just it just I fell out of love at the end if I was to put it in one word, it was COVID. <laughs> um, but I knew that I only had a few years left in the sport and I wasn't sure if that was one, two, three years. I was trying to just play it by ear and, and follow my instincts, which had helped a lot along the way and something I really try to value in myself is following my gut. So I was really just trying to appreciate cycling as it was. I had a bit of a rough time in my personal life and I just I had a lot of opportunities to think about cycling and, and what I wanted for my future as well in my cycling career and for my next career. And sometimes you just need time to sift through those feelings and, and sometimes it's important to not make big decisions when you feel bad or if you're a bit depressed. So I just tried to be patient with myself and I had a great start of the 2020 season and I was really proud how I'd kind of come out of some dark patches in a good way, um, still unsure of, of how I felt about cycling. And then COVID hit and I was back home, back in Australia, had a lot of time to think and I could really, yeah, feel the feels, I guess, and, you know, reassess what my personal values and priorities were because they change as you get older. Like I guess every five or 10 years you you have a bit of a, a reassessment of your life and your choices and I was definitely in that moment. In, in that two or three year period. And I think COVID was really that pinnacle of, yeah, thinking about what I wanted next and uh, realizing with all this free time that I had to myself with no racing, actually, this isn't so bad. And maybe this could be my last year. So yeah, I'd have to say like mid 2020 was really when the, the big decision became more real for me. It's been a long drag, uh, especially Fighting with different mentalities, working in teams that didn't understand me because I'm a foreigner that speak the language. So they taught me, they, they never understood uh, the struggle I had from being in a foreign country, same language, but different culture, different approach and away from family. And it's been a drag for a few years uh, prior to the first retirement, but I was still enjoying it. And I had a good good run with uh, Nasser Bouani at the end of 2014, where I think we won eight races in two months and was hoping to, to get re-signed and didn't work. So went on a first retirement, just enjoying myself. But So was that a forced retirement? Yeah, it was a forced retirement. So it was a disappointing, took it off guard. Uh, especially after a, a, a good run where the team trusted me and I had good results and it just like went off like no we're not keeping you that took me off guard that took me a bit like uh, by surprise and like burst oh. the bubble yeah but that got me thinking okay I gotta get on top of my well now I'm retired so I gotta get on top of it find what what's next I was keeping my con connection in cycling and all and in April I got a phone call from Nassab when he's like I'm moving team I want you on the next team retirement on hold a full year training by myself to get ready got ready and then it was uh, a nightmare <laughs> 
What was it like coming? Who he is. What was it like coming back? Coming back was fun. I think I got a lot of guys like showing me respect and guys that I never thought like uh, I made an impact like this to them. Uh, I even got like in the, I think it was in Paris, Richie Port coming out of nowhere, just like nice to see you back in the Peloton Dome. Hmm. And I was like, we hardly never raced or talked to one another. Didn't even know you knew my name. So I knew he, I was yeah. like, he knew no way who I am. So, yeah. so it's cool to see like so, so, some being back in the peloton being back at it and being competitive uh, after a year but then the structure and the team the mentality in the team just drained me and it was a whole year just a drag some some people on the team being who they are and uh, we've seen after what they become all right let's jump right to the end then when did the penny drop and some people have the penny drop moment as i spoke to you before about andreas the penny drop, you know, it's just like from one moment to the next, he went, I'm out, I'm done. Some people have the build up over a few years. I don't know, maybe uh, for you, when did the penny drop? When did you know enough was enough? And what was that moment like? I guess the real penny drop moment was it was in the Giro this year. There was a stage where we went up this climb. It was this cat one climb. It was pretty hard, but we didn't race that hard up it. So it wasn't that bad. But over the top, there was this massive crosswind and rain. The group was splitting up and, you know, a lot of the EF guys made it, you know, myself included. You know, we had six guys represented there, but it was over this plateau. It was like a, it was this dog fight. And then there was this small drag in massive crosswind before we hit the descent. And me and Jens Kukler, we got a little bit caught out in this group behind. We hit the descent and we get this massive wind gust. You know, the point where it kind of rocks you off your bike, you can't pedal, you're, you're going a little bit sideways, you have, to, you have to balance yourself. And when we got that gust, I was like, hey, screw this, I'm out. Like, I'm just making it down this thing safely. And Jens was like, he got that gust and he was like, all right, we got to go. We got to get, get back to that group. I ended up riding like the next 50K by myself. Like, I didn't even know I was in the race. I was just like, I was relying on the, the signs on the course to make sure I was still on the course. So finally the Gruppetto caught me and I'm shivering and all those guys were back there in the Gruppetto, just like in their nice warm winter coats and everything. I get back to the bus and I was just like, I was like, man, that was miserable. And I see Jens there and I was like, did you make it back to the group? And he was like, yeah, I made it back to the group. And I was like, that was it. Like for me, I was like, that decision right there to be like, do I fight to get back to the group? Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I think, I think that's it. Like, I don't have that mentality of do it at all costs anymore. So that was like the real penny drop moment. If mm-hmm. I rewind back a little bit further, that Vuelta that we did in uh, 2019 together, Mitch, the day yeah. that um, it was like you or it was, it was Rigo, Hugh, they had that massive crash and I was in the breakaway. I was actually in the winning breakaway and I crashed out of the breakaway on, on some slippery road. And yeah. I started the next day, but then after that, I was like, I, I can't. I had a broken finger and I had road rash everywhere. I was like, I can't. If Even if I try to continue, I'm not, not going to be effective. And at that point, I was kind of like, that That was sort of the turning point. I was like, man, I don't, I don't know what I'm still doing here. I don't know if I can keep doing this. And mm-hmm. I tried in 2020 and I... And then COVID hit and then I tried again in 2021. But I that was the point where I, I went from being kind of like a still a, a good rider to being like, a, I just can't get myself to push anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been an adjustment. Like, uh, I still want to go get out on my bike and I still want to make time for myself to be able, I don't know, cycling, it was always sort of like, even though it was our job, it was our, it's our escape too. Like, this is the me time I get. This is the time that I don't have to deal with kids and I don't have to have this responsibility. This is what I'm doing for me. Once you're not getting paid to do that anymore and once it becomes uh, a luxury than a, rather than a necessity, you feel more selfish about it. Also, if it doesn't work, you, you have to kind of accept that, all right, maybe I don't have this time right now. Yeah, in a, in a way, you almost feel like you're losing part of your identity. Like you're always one of the fittest people in the world, you know, like not anybody can do what you can do. And now the level I'm at, even just a couple months out of the, the sport, I'm like, okay, there's a there's a lot of people that can do what I can do now. <laughs> it's, so it's it's in a way it's hard to accept, but also in another way, you're you're like, you know what, this is it's kind of nice not to not to feel like you have to go out and do something. Now it's more like you get to go out and do something. I was actually up in Andorra with you, Mitch, training at your apartment. And it was around then, you know, it was it was weird. So my head was telling me to do it still. Like mentally, I should be doing this. But I think my body was just done, you know. Mm. I was just tired and maybe just tired of, yeah, all the, well, you know, you come towards the end of the career and you feel, you know, it starts getting dangerous. And I'd crashed the year before and, you know, three kids. And the moment when you're in the leading out of sprint, what I used to do, actually, sorry, I changed more to just riding the front in the last couple of years of my career. Also, we didn't have a sprinter back then in Mitchelton, did we? Um, not really, no. Not really. And so, yeah, saw some opportunities and I'd um, thought about DSing before and uh, yeah, the opportunity came up with, with Sky and, and then I didn't think anything else actually. I was like, wow, this is, I'd love to do this. Yeah. And stopped looking for um, contracts, called my manager and said, no. Nah. Yeah, he had a couple of teams lined up. Teams that I probably didn't want to go to anyway. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I called it, called it a day. It could have kept going, right? Then the sky opportunity happened. And was it crystal clear then for you? You're like, oh, I'm so done. You know, like, was it until the opportunity came or was it before that that you really went, I don't want to do it? Or was it still like, you know, when those teams were there and you didn't really know what you were going to do afterwards? You're like, oh, maybe I just keep riding for the financial side. I think if. I went to another team and in let's say enjoyed it more for what I was good at doing leading out mm. maybe I could have got another two years out of it yeah. I, th I did have an opportunity to change a team halfway through in my contract well, after two years in Mitchelton uh, that was up and another team you know were around the same sort of money and it, it was a good opportunity but I, I stayed with the Aussie team you know mm. but who knows you know, I, I think I could have went to that team and Road for longer, but where it was at that point in my life, no. and this opportunity come up, I was just at that point was just done, mm. you know, really done. Uh, just the last races, like um, I was pretty pretty much done actually. I got, uh, I have to also here go a little bit, a uh, little bit further back. I had a bad injury in 2018, so in my final year with the uh, with Lotto Jumbo at this time, I injured uh, my knee pretty bad. Uh, it took me it took me eight weeks and then and, and a big operation, but I got this offer from Akea Samsik 
to go to join that team with Andre Greipel. Andre took me to that team, and I find also I found also new motivation. You know, it it, it actually started with one Andre, my 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 cycling career. So when we when we've been uh, uh, 11, 12 years, yes, we raced already together, and and it was like okay, now the the circle is actually complete. Huh? I knew okay, it was pretty much my last year. But uh, I, I found big motivation to give everything, and 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 I did also everything I could. But I never, I never came back on a on, on a certain level where I where I could say, okay, I can compete here, really compete, and to help Andre in the sprints. And yes, and 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 you probably know when you are not uh, able to to play the game and, and 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 to compete on this on this big level, it's not fun. Cycling is not fun on 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 this pro level, and already. And also, I have to go back there in 2018 when Marijn Zeman, um, which is uh, the um, and the sports director now of Jumbo Visma, and he was also then the um, yeah the head director, say, or in, in, in the sport in, in, in the management. He told me uh, early June 2018 already. He said, "Listen, we are not gonna renew your contract." To be honest, I knew that. I, I I just knew that, and it was fine. I was fine with that. I, I was like, okay, I I also would would not renew my contract. Honestly, the year before in Tour de France, it's it started to grow slowly, so it was fine for me. Oh yeah, I, you know, through through a career, you have you have times. We've discussed about this uh, a few times where you you've had it with the sport. It's such a crazy sport. You need you need to be all in all the time. And, you know, in, in 2018, I decided to retire from, uh, you know, longtime team Mitchelton Scott, Green Edge, and I got talked into racing with the Rally Boys. That was a cool opportunity because it was going to be like a different scenario, right? And working in a different way, hopefully getting these guys like different support and kind of that captain role and just trying to lead by example with all the stuff that I'd learned over the years. And I started out very motivated that year, but then there's like a point where you can only carry that for so long. And I'm going to say like we had this big build up to Tour de Suisse. That was a very important race for our team. And I'd been doing all the stuff that like usually brought me what I like, what I'd come to learn gives you good form and can get you through a race. And maybe you even whatever. Like I, I had high hopes of doing well in the time trials, you know, and I got there like feeling pretty good about everything, a little bit of altitude stuff before and all of the kind of usual things that mm. should make a race like that pretty straightforward. Tortoise Swiss is a hard race. No, no question about it. But I was there in that first, first stage and, you know, hilly circuit standard Swiss kind of stuff. And I'm, I can barely hold the bunch, you know, and I'm just thinking like, no, this is truly not for me anymore. I, yeah. I did everything I thought I, I'm capable of, you know, and I like, I can't even hold the bunch. I'm struggling. And, you know, you have days, no doubt. Like we all have days, like even at our best, even in our best years, you have days where you you struggle and that's, that's okay. That's something I'm, I'm perfectly fine with, but it was just every day. And then you, you get yourself fired up for the time trial and you push good numbers and we've discussed this Mitch many times, but like you, you push some of your, mm. well, they're, they're decent numbers and you run a uh, hundred and tenth and you're like, huh, okay. I see where, where I stand in things. And that, that's that hard part of dealing with your ego and understanding like, it's just not like, I'm just not at the level anymore. And 
also my drive and my denial of things is not as strong as it once was. And and that's just a signal that it's not the end of the world, but that part of your life could be done. Uh, the exact moment I remember very well, but I, I raised this uh, once also t with, with, with Charlie, Charlie Vigilius, the DS in, 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 in the current team I'm working. And he somehow said that I played with that thought already a while. He was a DS in that time I was a writer. I, I don't remember that so well that I was busy with it kind of in the winter or so on. I remember I did want to do the whole season. And in Roubaix, I, I, I went into the early break and I wrote a flat and I came back and I wrote another flat and I came back again. And the third flat, I, I just thought, okay, what am I doing, right? Nobody's writing a flat. Why am I writing flats? So probably I'm too weak and jumping from one stone to the other. Um, that might be true, might not be true, but that's how I felt. I lifted my bike over, uh, I think it was Caratou de Labre. Uh, we were still ahead. I, I lifted the bike over the fence. They placed fences there uh, for the first year or something like that. And I just rode in the forest along Caratou de Labre. In the end, there was like a travel agency bike holiday group. And I just rolled to them and asked if they are going to uh, the velodrome or with them. Uh, took a shower, and then in the evening I um, I called uh, at the airport. I called JV. Said uh, I would like to stop cycling. Do Do you have work for me? He said yes, and I said okay. That's all. Short call, and only the next day I uh, told my wife, and that's basically it. And I never ever did regret it. I have to say. Is the grass greener on the other side with this idea of like being out is like awesome. You know, the grass is greener. You get to those moments. What's the reality like? What is it like moving on, giving up the routine of cycling? How have the relationships changed? This is David Miller. I'd had an awakening uh, previously because I was banned from the sport when I was 2004, so I was 27. And I was literally, so I'd seen the other side for two years and a very dark other side. But it was during my band that I recognized how lucky I was to, to be a professional cyclist, I have been, and to have the opportunity to be a professional cyclist again. Because when I was on the other side, I was like, oh my God, we've got it so good. You know, being a professional cyclist to, to and it's not just being a professional cyclist, it's, it's, this, it's this idea that we love what we do, we're passionate about it, we're willing to, I, I'm always very careful about using the word sacrifice because I don't think it's sacrifice because it's a decision you make and that's, what, well, that's where you come in with the selfishness because you're doing it because you want to do it because you love it so much so it's selfish, it's not sacrifices but when you come out of it you realise that well what, what do I have that I love as much anymore? What am I going to do now? What am I passionate about? Where's my guiding star? Because you do realise that it, it wasn't about the kind of it was never about the winning, it was never about the money, it was never about the glory and it was about, you just it was something you loved and so to come out of it and realise, well am I ever going to love something as much as I love mm. doing that it's, it's a quite a hard kind of realisation and realise you'll never have the camaraderie again mm. you'll never hit the highs that you hit, you'll never be probably, never be as good at anything ever again 
and you were like oh, we were so good and it's that kind of you look back and you're like we were so good at what we did and we loved it and you, you can kind of smile and it even gives me a warm feeling now we don't look back and go of course we didn't recognize it because we were kids yeah but it's it, it, we're so fortunate to have lived what we lived but there's also you, you have to accept and it takes a few years to to accept that it was a pretty magical time yeah and to to accept it and as the acceptance because there is going to there's as much as there is a transition to the rest of your life, because there's still a significant period of your life to go, because it's normally your mid-30s, there's also the fact there's going to be a period of mourning, that it's gone, and that it will never come back. <coughs> and a lot of, and I think we see a lot of people chase it in other things, and, and that, I think, takes a few years. I think it's about five years mm. for, the, for the bridge between the mourning uh, of the previous life and the acceptance of the future of your life and, and kind of preparing yourself for okay now we start it's like a midlife it's, a, it's an existential it's for sure it's going to be an existential crisis there's no doubt about it Gracie Elvin I really don't like to believe in that saying um, sometimes it's true but I think if you feel the grass is greener on the other side there's usually more to the story and I've definitely felt the craving every now and again to just leave it all, do a bikepacking trip on my own, don't talk to anyone for weeks, just, you know, go get tired, go pedal for hundreds of kilometres. And in one sense, that's a really awesome, healthy thing to do and people do that for fun. But on the other hand, you have to ask yourself, why do you want to go do that? And it's often because you want to escape, not to do the thing but to get away from another thing. Um, so, yeah, I really try to think about in a holistic sense of why I would have those feelings. So um, the grass is greener only if, you know, you've really put yourself in a position that you shouldn't be in and, and that's usually a more fundamental problem such as being unhappy, deeply unhappy with your career or deeply unhappy in a relationship or in a certain situation like that. Yeah, I think retirement isn't better than being in a career if cycling, but having a, a cycling career isn't better than the next part either because that's also a problem of athletes retiring and, and thinking my best days are behind me because that's also not true. I feel like you can just appreciate what you're doing right now. And for you, Mitch, I would encourage you to really enjoy every day now, every day in Girona because it's a cool city and every day training on your bike and every race that you get to go to and every conversation you get to have at dinner with your teammates because you will miss all of that. But your life afterwards is also going to be great. So mm. don't wish your time away is really more how I would see it rather than the grass being greener. This is Dom Rowland. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Life's a bitch. <laughs> no, no, but the the difference is when you're you're groomed to be a pro cyclist like you you're you're in it you don't realize how easy you have it you don't have to plan anything everything's done with you they send you your, your plane ticket you just got to grab the train or the taxi to get to the airport hotels there and you can complain all day about the bad food and it's like you don't have to deal with anything like here in Girona is over 100 pros so when it comes that you have to deal with the consequences by yourself in your daily life of, or, oh shit, I got bills to pay. I got like, ooh, reality catching up. It's challenging. It's fun because you, yeah, it's responsibilities. But being a cyclist, I miss this, the ease, the ease of like, everything is ready. I just got to focus on one thing, but it's 
this what made it boring for me. I needed more. I need something to occupy my brain. I need something to to occupy my downtime. Mm. And racing as an amateur in France, the first thing they tell you is like when you're not training, you have to be sitting down, resting, and not doing anything. And I'm like, no, I'm resting when. I'm having a stroll in Barcelona, checking out the city. I'm going out for a nice, easy dinner, uh, or I'm cooking for friends, mm. being busy. And uh, I've always been more effective and better performance when I was busy than when I was doing the job 100%, sitting mm. down and waiting for the next training and staring in the fridge. TJ Van Garderen. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, it is. <laughs> but that's because I feel like I got it all out. Like for some people, I wouldn't tell them like, oh, you should just quit because life is better. Because when I look back at my career, I had so much fun. I had so much fun being a bike racer. It, I mean, it was, you got to you got to be in shape. You got to meet cool people. You got to visit cool places. You know, the feeling of putting my hands in the air in a victory, you know, that was like, you can't replicate that. But right now, when I know that, okay, that, that feeling of putting your hands in the air, that's not coming back anymore. And when you see the numbers start to go down, like that's... So I actually had this conversation with a rider just recently, and I said, the funnest time in my career was when I didn't actually know how good I could be. You know, I, every every year I was training, mm. every every day I was training, every race I did, it was this upward trajectory, and I had, I didn't know what the limit was. Like maybe I could win the Tour de France one day. I didn't mm. know, but you know what? I'm finding out. I'm learning my limits, and I'm getting better. And then there kind of became this turning point where it was no longer trying to figure out how good I could be. It was like I was on the backside looking behind me saying like how can i get back to being as good as i once was you know i was going to be mm. instead of discovering what my limits were i was like okay i think my limit was there now how do i get back to being at that limit and that limit was it was pretty good but it wasn't it wasn't you know top top and that's when i when the exploration and, and the discovery was more the fun part just trying to recreate mm. something that wasn't fun to me anymore this is Robert Wagner. <laughs> I, I, you can't say this, no, for sure not. Huh? I, I mean, you, no, there are, there are, there are things on the other side uh, where you say, "Oh man, the grass is greener when you when we've been the professional cyclists." Like I say, yeah, you, you, you just ride your bike and and that's it. Huh? Now, now you're struggling with with other things, uh, with other things. But you know, every. Every uh, part has uh, has has his ad has their advantage. Yeah, their advantage. Yeah. Um, now look, I gained almost. Yeah, I told you the other day, I gained almost 13, 14 kilos now. Yeah, since uh, since I stopped uh, um, the, the professional cycling, and you know, I don't have to to look to my food now. Huh? And nowadays, and you know it, uh, um, riders having a scale for breakfast uh, and wait their, wait their muesli, their, 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 their porridge, their fruits, uh, carbs, carb intake, etc., etc. I don't do this. <laughs> no, I don't do this, you know, and I, I, I don't have to, I, I don't have to think about, okay, can I, can I eat this potato now? Or, uh, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. If I want, if, if, if I want to eat a Snickers, I eat too. No problem. Yeah. 
and uh, <laughs> no, no. But 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 you but you know what I mean. Uh, there there are there are uh, there are advantages uh, at the at the professional athlete and also on the other side. Giving up the routine, the cycling routine, you know, the relationships, how they've changed and the selfishness, you know, like as a pro athlete, it's it's obvious that we we have to be selfish to get where we are. You know, it's it's our way or the highway. You know it many times, you know, it's like, well, we can meet at that time because that's what I need to do and everyone has to fit around you. How has that changed since coming out of this bubble, you know, giving up that, like I said, that routine or... You know, how the relationships changed, those people that you thought were really close to you, suddenly they've moved away and the people that are now reconnected with you. And again, like understanding what other people's needs are and just sort of understanding that, oh, geez, I was pretty selfish and, you know, my road or the highway type thing. Tell me about how those little relationships have changed now. The relationships change a lot, I guess. And I, I feel like a lot of us have two lives when you're a professional athlete. So you have your life with your athlete friends and your teammates. And then you have your life with those outside of that, which is your family and your older friends, I guess. So I was always quite mindful to stay in touch with my non-cycling support network. And it was something that I really valued in my life. And from Australia too, you do have to leave a lot behind for the majority of the year. So it's up to you to keep in contact with people you care about because when you come back for the Aussie summer, you got to pick up where you left off. And it's a lot harder if you haven't (laughs) stayed in contact for six to nine months of that year. So coming back, I was really glad that I'd you know, made that effort. Certainly I'm not the best at it. I could have done better even, but I feel like those relationships have been really important for me to feel supported in my new life um, and to have people to hang out with and have fun with. And it's strange because they're not asking me about cycling anymore. And when you're an athlete, I guess conversation is easy because people know what to ask you. And often the conversation is more about you than the other person. Even if you don't prefer that, it's just easier and more natural because you're probably doing something more interesting in general. Um, so it's it's interesting in those settings now of having conversations and trying to think about what to talk about. But to be fair, um, a lot of us, and I know for myself, we always will be wanting to do something a bit different, a bit interesting, a bit special. So, you know, I haven't jumped into the next big thing straight away, but I'm still, you know, trying new things and those things are pretty interesting to the average person. So I still have a lot to talk about, and but I try really hard not to talk about myself too much. <laughs> um, but I've really lost contact with a lot of my teammates and athletes, particularly, you know, like there's a huge amount of riders that are your mates in Girona and when you don't live there anymore you lose contact with most of them really quickly and it's kind of nice though because you realize a lot of them were situational friends and not to say you don't like them and that you didn't have a good time but they weren't you know the strongest of connections so it's nice to realize there were two or three people in your whole cycling career that you want to stay forever friends with and and they're worthwhile keeping in touch with. Dom Roland. Something I've seen a major change because when you're when you're in that bubble, when you're in like that focus or self-focus and the race focus, you're surrounded by people that only focus on themselves, and they reach out to you only because they need something. 
and I've discovered true friendships afterwards where I've seen like everyone that was reaching out for something out of me just like oh they all vanished and now people that stays people that are still around me are true friends where mm. if I need help they'll be there or if I just want to hang out they'll be there they'll, they'll, they'll find the time and I've lost a few friends uh, along the way or I gave up on a few friendships because yeah you meet them you go hang out with them it's draining because you always just they only speak of them, themselves or they're bitching about other people but there's no true conversation you're always talking about someone mm. you're not talking about ideas you're not talking about like feelings or emotions you're just talking about like oh this one annoys me this and that mm. like it sounds like yeah uh, a soap opera yeah and I've seen it lately again with, with with a friend that retired all the paper on around that person were always there to to get something from from my friend and then after retirement they all vanished because oh they couldn't get it anymore they couldn't get that information they couldn't get that help they couldn't get that little extra for for themselves because like oh no you're not in the circle anymore mm. it's like no that's not friendship so no now i have true friends i have people there for me and i'm there for them this is brett lancaster i think what happens mitch is your body stays in that routine like my wife she expected me to just click the fingers and be you know being the house husband or whatever it might be and yeah she was so good over the years and did a lot for me and you know had my siesta in the afternoon after training and you know it was a cyclist life but it took a while to adapt you know a couple yeah. of years at least and you definitely have these chemical imbalances with your body you know so mm. you put on weight hormones change yeah being at the top end you know like the highest sport and super fit you know and to go you look down a bit of a gut you're thinking right now nah, i'm back out this week <laughs> i think I, I i struggled a fair bit the first two years um just with life in general even though i had a really good job with sky I, i put a lot into that into work though probably too much you know just not to, yeah over the top i think fully committed to it and and work my ass off there and come home also really stuffed from driving the car we've just seen it this last couple of weeks with um steve cummings mm. just the driving hours he's like how do you do it like, mm. i'm so tired i think you just get used to being tired it mm. is and oh, you adapt to anything you know And again, from Swaino. You know, for me, it always was that the planning of having kids was going to be around the time that I would retire. So that was always part of the plan because I always felt like just what you said there, to be fully immersed in this sport, you have to live a bit like a baby. Like you said, like it is just a me, me type of mentality. I don't know if it works any other way. Like, It's just a, it's such an all-consuming sport and I always struggled with that and no matter how much I tried to be aware of that and respect that that was like, it, you, you still can't master it, you know, like you're still, you're still just living in your own world. And so that for me was, was a nice thing to, to kind of shake off, but it was, it's a struggle still because how many years, you know, I think of that sport. I started in late 99, so, and I retired in 2019. And hmm. so 20 years of just thinking and, and obsessing about cycling for the majority of my time 
for many years, you know, before you have a relationship, before you have family, it's just you trying to get better at this this crazy thing, you know? And so, as much as I can respect that and be aware of it, it's a hard thing to shift. And it's been really, it's been so awesome in so many ways, but still, I'm not going to lie, it's a struggle in the head to um, come to terms with that that is no longer a part of like, you're so used to having your time and you're like, yeah, it's your time for your direction. And it's always about you and the next thing. And that sounds so ridiculous to say, but that is the reality of how a lot of us live. And I'll say just for myself, that's how I was living for such a massive part of my life. So it's not easy to shake off, I'm going to say. So in a lot of ways, it's our, our situation is a bit different because we took on everything all in one year, retiring, uh, moving internationally, COVID stuff. It's like, it's, it's been, it's been, uh, just a checklist of awesome things to, uh, deal with in, in one year. But, um, I'd say it's been pretty damn good. And yeah, I, I would just say like for anyone out there that, that could be going through a similar process, just really respect it and know that that is going to be one of the biggest struggles you're going to deal with in this this process of retirement. I have to say it's been great like being home. Like uh, I'm yeah. really close with my brother. So he's he's always thought, you know, as much as he respects cycling, he he knows what a crazy sport it is. And we've had so many great moments ski touring lately and, you know, just getting out and, and catching up. And that's that's a big thing because you realize how much of our relationships in the cycling world, unless it's your really close friends, how much of those relationships are really peripheral. Like they're not really deep connections. They are just, you're there as like a colleague, as a business partner. And, and don't get me wrong, there's lots of awesome people. It's just that in that world, in those organizations, you're exposed to so many people and it's hard to to make really strong connections. So it's been nice to just be back where, where I'm from and removed from that because as you know, it, it's, uh, it's so different. Like I'm sure it is for you when you're home, like just getting out of this bubble of cycling and being around people with, with normal lives and kind of seeing how they function and, and operate is, it's been a nice change. I don't know. I think one of the biggest things you notice is how we have to be convinced in that world that it's everything, that what we're doing is so important. And then once you remove yourself, you realize how people don't give a flying <laughs> about it. <laughs> like cycling people involved in the cycling world, they care, but man, people in the real world, they, they don't even it know what you're talking like, about. I've, even, I've noticed it this year, even not being at the Vuelta, I'm like... I may be caught one stage, but for me, for many years, that was the pinnacle of my year, pinnacle of my life. I would, you know, ride that thing. I'd do things crazy to myself to be in shape for that race that I thought everyone cared about. But actually, outside, even <laughs> in the cycling world, as another pro, you're barely even aware the race is on. Totally. Yeah. Totally. This is Andreas Clear. For example, I've never been on, on summer holidays with my family. Why is that? Yeah, because there was always a bike race and you had to train for this and you have to train for that. Because you want to be as pro as you can and as successful as you can, or at least to be a figure the team needs. And maybe it comes down to that because you, you, you even knowing that you couldn't win a bike race for the last uh, whatever, how many years then, you still were kind of an important figure in, in, a, in a proper setup. And you wanted to be an important figure in your family cycling. 
maybe it's that, right? So I loved working. I, 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 I learned to love working in the garden, for example. You want to do that when you're a cyclist, right? I, I wanted to have a dog, but I never had time. So now I have a dog and I walk the dog and I just, I just love it, right? And you have those barbecue and you have those weekends and you have. So I think I was quite, I don't remember very well, but I think I was quite happy knowing that it's soon finishing. Not so much during the training rides and stuff because I loved it, but much more the whole lifestyle. Uh, long story short, it's maybe the unknown which which can or scare you or make you in a certain way happy the last weeks or month or what's the day you finish. And depending how you see it and how deep you go into the detail, the more realistic you hit it from day one. Because if you say, I'm going to stop and then I'm going to make a holiday in Dubai with my family, right? Which is, I mean, uh, this has nothing to do with the reality. But if you go and you say, now I'm going to uh, drop the kids at school and pick them up. And after that, I go to the Mercadona and buy some uh, tomatoes. I mean, as a cyclist, you never thought really uh, in your peak years, where is the food coming from, right? Just say, yeah, I need uh, this pasta. What has the toll been on the body as a pro? Do you think the price was too high? Like now you've had time to let yourself settle down. And all those days were always out there, cold Giro stage going, you mm. roll into the bus and go, well, I just lost about four years of my life that day. <laughs> Is it true? Like, do you think it's been kind to us, this sport? David Miller. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think um, I'm 44 years old now and it's, I haven't done, I don't do much sport. Now. I mean, I guess we're all different. I'm very lucky in that I got hyper adaptation abilities and I got super recovery which was the reason I was a good professional cyclist but again if you look back now even if it was really hard we spent our teenage years our 20s in elite sport kind of doing looking after our bodies so mm. we, we kind of hit mid 30s and a lot of our generation they start their life around then they start to look after their bodies we got a big head start yeah you know we're we're pretty incredible physical specimens and we've we, I think we probably added years onto our life because of how well we looked after ourselves in our teens and 20s and early 30s. What's a bigger concern is the amount of mental stress we put on ourselves because mm. I think the physical thing, it's, we don't, it's a non-impact sport. Yeah, I've got scars all over myself and plates and broken like 16 bones, but <laughs> I can, I'm still fine. You yeah. know, it doesn't, but it's, um, but the, the mental thing I think is hard because I think a lot of what's, <laughs> what's happened to me is a kind of a, filled my quota of suffering I kind of don't and I think that's why I ended up in the final two years I couldn't do it anymore I kind of got this this little theory of my own which is we have the majority of us have a quota a kind of like a piggy bank of how much we can push ourselves mm. and you're kind of you're taking money out of that all the time and I think pro cyclists take a bit too much money out of that mm. and it's it's one of those piggy banks you don't refill Mm. And that's kind of how I feel now. It's because um, I was 18 years at kind of world tour and kind of really banging my head against the wall and loving it. But I just don't feel the need to hurt myself anymore. Mm. All it's, the want, yeah. It's just gone. Yeah. And it's which is it's good and bad. But it, I think that's the thing that's I'm a lot softer now. 
yeah. physically. I mean, I could do whatever I want, but so I think that's. I, but I genuinely don't think I think it's been a huge privilege for us uh, to have to have looked after ourselves and and done what we did in our in our younger lives because I think it will reap benefits for for the rest of our lives. And again, from TJ, nobody goes into the sport the same as they're going to come out of it. You know, like if you're going to be a pro for for 10 plus years, you're going to spend some nights in the hospital. You're going to have some broken bones. You're going to, I don't know, you're going to stay in different hotels for three weeks at a, at a grand tour and that's going to affect your sleep. You're going to probably have to have some jet lag, you know, traveling over the world. Like it's, it definitely takes its toll. At, at the time when you're a pro cyclist, like you don't care. If you would have, if you would have told me like, Hey, you could win the tour de France, but it's going to take five years off your life. I'll be like, I don't want to live till I'm 90. I'm fine. I'll live till I'm 85 and I'll be, I'll, I'm, I'm happy with that. Like those last five years, they suck anyways. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't think of it like that, but, um, but definitely now it's like getting up in the morning. Like I have this spot on my low back that has just been nagging me for years. And I have this like, I don't know, partially detached labrum in my hip. And I like, I severed a bicep tendon. So my muscle on my, uh, on my right arm sits lower than the, than it does on my left. And like, you know, like I have this big scar on my nose from when I, I got smacked with a, with a log that was flying around in tour Romandy back in 2012 that, you know, <laughs> required like massive stitches. And it was nobody like, does that, is that going to have a toll on you? Of course it's going to have a toll on you. And, uh, yeah. And that's not even the, that's not even counting. Like the times that we are basically hypothermic in stages of perineus or, uh, or just, yeah, sleepless nights that we have and, who knows? But I mean, would you trade it for anything? No. I don't know how long I was supposed to live or how long I'm going to live. But you know what? With whatever I have left or whatever toll it took on me, I had, I had a great 12 years. And again, from Gracie. I'm really proud of how I managed my body through my career. But that being said, there was plenty of moments in races where I'm thinking this should be illegal, this is crazy, and we're all going to die. <laughs> like I, I definitely relate to feeling like you age about five or ten years in some races. So, yes, we definitely abuse our bodies, even if we've looked after ourselves and fueled right for the majority of the time. Um, the level of cycling in this modern age even in women's cycling, like it's it's extreme and everyone talks about, you know, finding the balance. But to be the best at anything nowadays, especially in sport, you have to be extreme. And I think that you just, as for me, I just had to make sure I picked moments of being extreme and, and switched it off when you got home from a tour or had the off season. If you were on always, you were really going to ruin yourself mentally and physically. So I, that was how I found balance of being extreme when you needed to be and, and switching off when you could. I've come out of cycling with relatively few major injuries. I had some pretty amazing accidents in my career, but um, touch wood, none of them have really impacted me now. And now I'm trying new things is probably where the injuries are coming from. <laughs> I put my back out vacuuming the other day, which was quite embarrassing. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's just something that you'll probably have to yeah, deal with, I guess, certain injuries and, and certain um, even mental injuries, I guess, is an interesting one. Like we have to put so much pressure on ourselves. I, I would say that a lot of cyclists go through some mental health issues 
at least once in their career, if not more. So there's a bit of an aftermath there for sure as well. A lot of it has to do with the context of how you did treat your body in, in this sport. So there's many ways to go about it. Some people are always playing the just got to get through this and, and uh, just got to get the, these gains and, and not really thinking about the long-term picture. I know for myself, a big focus was always to look after myself first before I would trade anything for performance or whatever. And even in saying that, as much as I was aware of that and, and tried to refrain from uh, totally pinning myself, it's it's a big part of what we have to do in that sport. And, and like you said, there are some days where you're racing and you're just like, why am I doing this, mm. you know? But I'm going to say I wouldn't trade, trade any of it. I, I, I'm so happy and feel so fortunate I got to do that. Like as much as some of those days sucked and <laughs> were, were, were trashing you, like they – that's part of what I still love. It's it's that mental challenge. Like a lot of that stuff, Mitch, as you know, yeah, it's hard physically, but it's more that mental bit, yeah. like where you're freezing your nut, nuts off and it's pissing it? rain. And you, yeah. yeah, like you just, you have another four hours on the bike and you're just like, well, I can curl up and give up or I can just keep plugging away, you know, mm. a little bit further. And there's that part of me I would never trade for anything. I'm going to say like overall, if, if you do have a, a long career, look after yourself, you're going to be better off than, yeah, than so many people, you know? And I think that one of the things to really focus on, and this is just for younger riders, is, is look after your body in the sense of your bones and your skeletal structure, you know? Um, we're so afraid to lift things and carry things and walk and all that stuff within that sport. But um, I know you don't want to, retires a 35 year old man with osteopenia and, and uh you know when you fall over you you break i think that that's not worth it for the rest of your life because those things you can't really change so just take care of your structure uh, as hard as that can be because the world is obsessed with lightweight people in that sport and i get it but uh, just always remember that life after the sport is is very long and it's awesome so don't trade everything for that whatever you think you're going to gain out of that. <laughs> which, is, which is very point. hard to not think in the moment. As you know, like you get this 100%. this pressure and it feels right and, you know, I'll worry about the future later. Um, and, you know, next thing you know, yep. 10 years has gone past, you've been just, it's all micro stuff, you know. It's never one big thing that you notice yep. it. It's always this small thing here, small thing there over two, three, four years and all of a sudden the damage is done. To be honest, I did, I felt all of my damage in my first years in the track program under Charlie Walsh. Mm. Those were the hardest years of my life, without a doubt, training-wise. So when I was pro, I found it easy. <laughs> it sounds funny, yeah. but not easy. Of course, there was huge days, you know, um, here and there. But those days were epic, the training mm. we used to do in that three years. And if you ask anyone else, Luke Roberts, you know, he's, he's old DS like myself now, or Bradley McGee, I'm sure they'll, they'll tell you the same. But I think with, you know, crashing, of course, there's always that. You've had your fair share of it. I was pretty lucky. I only had a few big ones, but um, I've done more, more damage after I've retired on <laughs> my mountain bike at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. But it, another factor is for guys like us, Mitch, we have to diet, but never go starve yourself for six months, do you? If you look at some climbers mm. or, you know, like, Let's say Grant Thomas and he's, he's, Grant's natural weight isn't what it is now. It's probably eight, nine kilos mm. higher, seven, eight, nine around that figure 
his natural body weight what he naturally would be even if he was and let's say he's the normal road rider yeah what he was when he was in barlow world yeah or you know when he was when he won the uh, olympics on the in the Track. team's pursuit yeah, yeah he was 80 kilograms 79 so that's probably you know around 10 11 kilograms difference it's insane i think that definitely it does affect, well it does affect your bone density we've seen that you've seen that um with riders in your teams and mine you know um, even with our scans back at ais yeah you can um, just see it going down year down, after year yeah if you know me i'd always put a lot of weight on in the off season um but there's a lot of guys that redline it all year round and definitely so what's been the effect now afterwards have you noticed anything after was it six years now you've been out six years later are you thinking Ooh, I don't know if that sport was that kind on me. Or you think, you know what? I actually feel pretty good still. No, I'm all right. I mean, I could sometimes uh, diet a little better or drink less bit, less beer and every mm. now and then. But I've, I've done all the checkups. I had um, ECGs on my heart. Well, after Nico passed last year, Nico Portel was a bit like, well, maybe, you know. I need to check things out. Did full checkup, uh, checkup even on the bike at stress. And, yeah, the heart was perfect you know mm. but um it's something i'll continue doing you mm. know um but look in in general i was pretty good in my career with injuries mm. never saw knees or or anything like that yeah back issues lower back just from being a bigger guy and yeah. probably you know bigger glutes and pushing <laughs> pushing out the power but um yeah now i could you know just go for a run today and you know go 12 kilometer sort of hike run yeah. and no issues so i'm guess i'm pretty lucky in that respect with injuries and again from andreas i don't think it's very healthy right to race your bike at the highest level for so many years and have crashes and broken bones and right all of that on the other hand you have to admit that um, you know your uh, body very well you will realize that once you stop right because that that goes away you now know your body much better than I know my body at the moment. I think it's a super great sport, rain or snow or not, or sunshine. And if you are able um, physically to sign up for that sport, then I can only give the advice to everyone do it because it's just still one of the greatest sports out there, in my opinion. Not only that it gives you the freedom of riding 200 kilometers through the landscape with whatever, which, you know, meeting points and plans, and it doesn't really matter, but the freedom you have uh, during that time, those things will never come back. Plus, I don't think that you have that in other sports. Uh, I might be wrong now, but right. I couldn't come up now with another sport where you say it takes five and a half hours. So if you are a younger person listening to that podcast and you have the skills and you get the offer, do it. What don't you miss from the lifestyle being a pro? As Australians, I think we have it a bit harder than most because, you know, it's a 24-hour travel day at the minimum to get back to your friends and family at home. So I think that's always the go-to answer of 
I don't miss that. I, I don't miss not being able to have a hug from my mum and dad when I need it and, you know, you just have a social life outside of your teammates and cyclists in Girona. Like that's really cool that Australians can build up a life there, but it, you could just never escape cycling either and that's mm. difficult. Um, so, yeah, I don't miss all of that and the travel that comes with it. I love travelling actually. I love seeing new places and I actually don't even mind being on an airplane, but week after week when you're getting on those EasyJet and Ryanair flights, you Mm. get pretty sick of it because they're gross and you Mm. just feel like crap even if it's only, I don't know, three hours worth of travel. I always feel like I have bad legs for a couple of days and you're just more exposed to germs and all that. So, yeah, don't miss all of that stuff, all of the extra stuff that takes away from actually just enjoying riding your bike every day. And again, from Dom. The childish mentality, the selfishness, the, the snake way people try to use you to get to, to what they want mm. instead of being... The, the, the constant way you have to prove yourself in a team when, well, I'm here, you hired me because of what I can do. Why do I have to prove myself the whole season? Trust me, I'll be there. The unprofessionalism of cycling well, it could be so much greater, but it feels so amateur sometimes. Mm. Fighting for some details that are just like, look at the big picture, don't look at the details. TJ Van Garderen. Sometimes I don't miss how I felt at home. You're trying to diet, so you're hungry and you're a little bit like, uh, you're a little bit on edge, you're tired, you're just chronically fatigued. So even though you had time at home with your family, it was almost like sometimes it felt like a burden. Like uh, I'd just be better off on my own right now because I'm too grumpy and on edge and stressed about the race and I'm hungry and blah, blah, blah. That, you know, all this time and energy spent with the family, it almost it almost felt I, I, I didn't like that feeling because it was um, your family. You know, now I feel like it, they enrich my life and I, I love spending time with them and you know, I love going out and running around and playing tag in the backyard with my girls. Whereas before I'd be like, I got to be off my feet. Please don't ask me to do this. That was definitely yeah. something that was weighing on my mind. And now I just took this two week trip around Europe, around Italy, and then visiting family in Holland um, with my family. And it was it was the best time. And I just it, I just felt like I had so much energy and so much, uh, you know, just time. And, you know, I was just so present and not just thinking like, every step that we take down these streets is something that's taken away from my performance or every time we go and try this new restaurant or this new food or whatever, I'm like, Oh man, am I going to have to burn this off? Or that, that sort of internal calculator of every energy that you're spending is somehow going to take away from some other aspect. Like I, I don't miss that. I don't miss the stress in the bike race. Like the past couple of years, the worst part of my day was kilometer zero to the finish line. Everything else was awesome. I loved the dinner table. I loved like the Uno playing at the like the card games. And I loved the guys. I loved the, my colleagues. But I just didn't like the racing anymore. It, it was too stressful. It was too hectic. I did not want to crash. Um, I'd had too many crashes in my career. And it was just like once the finish line was crossed, I, I loved being a bike racer. Yeah, if I could just train for a living and just – I would do it. Like, I love the bike. I mean, the, I think the day after I retired, you know, this the day I got home, I was like, you know, I want to do a ride. But mm. yeah, the, the racing up part of it, it just it wasn't fun anymore. This is Brett Lancaster. 
travel as I mean I travel now as a DS although you know there's a lot of lonely times as a pro Hmm. Um, and even more so now the guys that do these altitude camps alone just the loneliness is a killer yeah just it was just travel I think just shitty bad sometimes you know in the judo sometimes you'd you'd be in a hotel there's fucking noise and people making a racket you don't sleep all night try and do your best still yeah. Yeah, and the bed's like from 1960, you know, sleeping on that thing, and you know, you just wake up feeling like ass, and you got to get out there and ride a 200-kilometre yeah. mountain stage. So, <laughs> anyway, you, you got by. Swaino. You know what I think I I dislike the most, Mitch, was like, and we've we've discussed this a hundred times, but you get into that sweet training block, and you're you're you know, say you're up in Andorra, the weather's just been bomber, and you're putting in the hard yards. Everything feels awesome. Everything's going smooth. You feel good. Mm-hmm. Like you just feel like your your life in in cycling in, in the sense of what we were trying to achieve. That's that's the best thing going, right? That's as good as it gets. And then you fly. You drive down to Barcelona in a bus or get a lift with someone, and you you start catching a flight. And then you're you're part of the bubble, right? And for mm-hmm. me, that was always such a hard transition because I live like a bit of a recluse, you know, like I. I like things a certain way in the sense of training. I like to do a lot of it by myself. I like to go on my own routes. I like I like nature, you know? And then immediately here I am immersed in this artificial world of airports and buses and living out of plastic and all of the things I kind of despise. And then those first stages, first races of whatever block you were off to were just, they were so shocking, you know? Mm. Like it was so shocking because... I would be convinced the form was just ridiculous that I'd just be breathing through the nose for a lot of this stuff. And so many times I was dead wrong, you know? And then it was just, but that's the reality of that sport. No matter where you're at physically and mentally, like it's just that hard. Mm. So you have to be ready for that fight. And it was just that transition because then once I was in, once I got past those moments, I was good. I was like, I, did, I was immediately able to switch into the the next mode, which was like that racing part of myself that wanted to figure out how to survive and make, you know, whether that's helping the team in any facet I could, that was my next mission, right? Mm. But it was such a hard shift to go from that, that perfect world that I'd created at home <laughs> into this crazy racing machine, right? And I forgot about it every time. I pushed it out of my my uh, thoughts because I just I didn't want to accept it was always going to be like that. But it was just maybe my coping mechanism. I always think of the Giro, right? The Giro, everyone has epic story. In it, I'm like, I'm never doing this race again. This is so ridiculous. And then a week later, I'm like, man, that Giro, what a race. Like, wow, that was so crazy. Yeah, I'll do that that again for sure. Sign me up. I'd almost say it's sooner. It's almost like the, the day after yeah. is too soon, but you can feel the transition already. And it's like two days later, you're like, totally. I'm back on board. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and again from Andreas. The training. I love training, but if, if you tell me I have to train now for one and a half month for whatever... I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I, I do ride my bike 30 kilometers uh, a few times a week, not much more. Uh, and I do some runs if I can or not, but that has nothing to do with training. Yeah, I don't miss 
training. Like, is that just the general pressure of it? The the pressure of I have to go out and I have to achieve something in this training. Um, that you know, whereas now it's a bit more exercising for freedom, for enjoyment, and the training became less enjoyable because of the it was yeah. work. I mean, yeah, you, you're right. Now you're doing it for health, mm. right? Because if you make a barbecue on Friday and one on Saturday and you do this uh, two months long, and uh, I mean, right, it can't be healthy. No. Less healthy than riding in the snow in San Remo. So now I do it for health and before I did it because it was my profession, right? Still, I loved it and um, mostly uh, uh, in the time without a power meter. I think I only sent it one file actually ever in my life. We did it on heartbeat, right? That's just fine. Or oh, it worked somehow. David Miller. The monotony, the same thing over and over again, the same people, the same hotels, the same, just the same. I don't miss that. The idea, I remember when I was a pro, I hate the idea of going on training camps and now look back at them as halcyon days of just blissful kind of simplicity. And and I say, yeah, and most of it, now I look back at a lot of my pro cycling career, I go, God, it was... It was such a simple existence. Mm. It's not that when you're in it. And hence why I'd never ever say to a young pro, you know, just enjoy this and cause it is pretty simple and it's a good time because I know what it's like when you're in it. It's so, it's so intense. But now with hindsight, I'm like, you know what? That was a pretty simple life, kind of blissful mm. time. And I do, yeah, I, I look back on it with, with rose tinted glasses now for sure. And again, from Wagi course yeah it's maybe an easy an easy answer it's the bad weather right sir when you know i have to go out i really have to go out of course i think if you if you're retired no one missed this uh, this is uh, i think this this is this is pretty clear um what i also don't miss is like i i the, it's the nutrition part you know to eat when you want, of of course, I still have have a have a, have a, have a health, healthy lifestyle. Huh? I, I I I eat still pretty healthy, but it's it, it's not that I uh, that I that I that I count calories, which I did here and there in my professional <laughs> career before. And 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 when I see the boys now, uh, it's getting more and more extreme. They do nowadays, actually. Yeah, I don't miss this and uh, in, in the the nutrition part. I guess on the flip side now. What do you miss? What do you miss from the old life? There's plenty I do miss. Like I've said before, I miss just, you know, exercising for a job and being paid for it. That's very, very cool. I hate to say it, I miss feeling special. Um, Mm. And that was something I really did try and appreciate when I was an athlete of when you're sitting on the start line and it's freezing cold and it's probably raining and there's people in the cafe in some Belgian town or Dutch town and they're all rugged up in their coats and they're drinking beer and hot chocolates and you just like, I can't wait till that's me. You just, I always took a moment and, and was like, no, they're there to watch us. Like mm. everyone wishes that they are on that side of the fence and really need to appreciate those moments because I knew I would miss them and I definitely miss them now in hindsight. So watching nationals this year, watching Flanders, um, you know, you go, oh, geez, I'm not on that side of the fence anymore and I'm, I'm not as special. I don't have a pro mm. jersey on my back anymore. I'll always have that to be proud of, but you feel like you're easily forgotten, as bad as that sounds. It's very ego-driven. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say, is like managing the ego. Like, what's that like coming back and sort of, you know, managing that, not getting the sort of your tires pumped up, you know, metaphorically by everyone. 
we spoke about that trying to change that before trying to reinvent yourself and trying to let that go but actually there's a big part of us that sort of need to feed that ego almost in a way but you actually sort of got to suppress that a bit and just try and you know let that go what's that been like because that's something i'm sort of aware of and notice it every so often this year especially for me not racing a lot i'm like hey what about me hello yeah i think you and i are similar riders in some respects in that you know we're capable of winning races but they're kind of few and far between and we were really good support riders, good classic riders. We loved the the craziness of one-day races, um, but we weren't those sprinters that are always in that pressure position of winning races. So it's funny that you think that you still miss that and you still had an ego because you weren't, you know, one of the top riders. So I've definitely tried to go in a bit more inwards and find a bit more intrinsic validation of myself and not seek it outside because it's tempting for me, and I, I do do it, I'm not going to say I don't, is going on social media and posting and, and trying to find avenues to for, um, to pump up your ego. And for me, yeah. that's going into public into the public media and doing commentary and stuff. So I think if you can, um, you know, monitor that and monitor your ego and accept that you'll always have it, I think it's almost impossible to get rid of it, but just stay a bit humble have things that you're proud of that other people don't need to know about and then find things that are exciting. And for me, like being on live TV, I'm actually kind of a shy person and a bit of an introvert. So that's actually like I get nervous and it's a bit of a thrill and it's like any kind of public speaking, like it's it's almost like getting race nerves. So yeah. that's actually a healthy way for me to fill that hole that I miss from racing. But as long as I'm not always seeking that attention then I feel like I can keep it in a healthy space the speed the fun in the races the challenge finding my way through the peloton because that's one thing i was good at is moving through the peloton between the sprint leading out and calling the shots the the the, the relief the pleasure after a hard day on the bike especially the, the, the i remember those those big rainy crazy days like kiln kiln that only 16 of us finished the the rush of the endorphin, endorphins yeah. endorphins coming up they're like okay yeah i had fun today the those crazy races the classics in the in the circuits the downhills at like 90 plus k an hour where you feel in control that feeling of being extremely fit and strong and especially you know when i was leading out your patakis or hushoffs and winning a green jersey with hushoff and being able to get on the front of k to go and just know you can just let it off yeah. and, and swing off and you've got that guy. And no one can come around. No you one can be. come around. Yeah. And you never get that back, you know. Yeah. Um, but you can try. <laughs> but I worked with a psychologist post-retirement, actually. Um, you know, just a sports psychologist sorting things out, you know, yeah. about what we talked about before, actually. And he said to me, Brett, no matter what, don't try and chase that feeling because you'll never get that again. That's done. You can get close and you do other ways to get there, but don't don't think you're going to feel that good again. So it's it's sad because it's like, oh, but it's also good for him to tell you that because you stop chasing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I miss that, that day-to-day focus, that day-to-day just having a plan. Like every day I have to be doing something physical. So even in this life now, if I have a bunch of stuff that, heaven forbid I have to use a computer for a while, I have to have something physically planned for that day. 
And cycling just mm. ticked off that box so nicely for me. And I got a lot of value out of just physical movement. And I love the fact that like that job just required you being outside for a big chunk of the day, working hard with your body. And I just, to have that like uh, as your job, now there's a lot of sucky parts to it. No, no doubt about that. But I would say for the overall, for the whole, it was, uh, it was such a fantastic job to have mm. uh, for, for a guy like myself. So I, I miss that. And I miss, you know, like I was lucky to be part of some great teams and I miss that. Um, like I love working with people and trying to accomplish crazy tasks, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to do stuff. And then just that sensation of pulling things off with, with a group of friends, with a group of people that, you know, are all like-minded and, and just that camaraderie. I miss that, that aspect for sure. Uh, the intense moments and uh, you, you, the thrill of doing, going into a lead out or going into uh, whatever which section on a Flemish race and doing it right uh, kind of satisfies you actually while you're riding on the cobbles because you just think, okay, whoever texts now, I'm anyway in the right spot. If I can't follow him, I follow the next ones. Uh, I'm just placed right or a lead out. That you go out and you have already, you know, you did it right. You have the feeling you did it right. Uh, the leader finishes off. Uh, it's just a great feeling. That feeling is great, and the tension going towards it is something great and something I miss. And I didn't find over the last years where where, where I didn't race, I didn't find an alternative. Right? Maybe it's car racing or something, but I don't have the money for that. So far, I didn't find an alternative, but I'm also not really looking for it, to be totally honest. Yeah, I miss the camaraderie. I miss the kind of the, the shared success. Mm -hmm. I, I miss uh, not just the success, but the, the kind of sharing, the commiseration, to just having that team. Because I was very lucky in the final years of my career to have such a great team with, with Slipstream, which playing Team Garmin. And we were such a band of brothers. And we kind of were so we were so good, all of us, and we were we were better when we were together, and I missed just how good we were and how mm. we were symbiotic, and and we were kind of be it high be it low, we kind of we we just rolled with it, and it's very hard to re replicate that in any other walk of life, having mm. that kind of that team, that's so committed of, to a goal, committed to know? a goal and sharing it, and and as I said, sharing the success, sharing the fail, the failure, and and then making memories yeah. you know what else do you do where you, you have moments where, that are just that become embedded it's mm. like they're never going to go like i can see Ryder hedgedale christian vandervelde dave zabriskie or even bradley and tyler farrer julian dean you know the list goes on could see any of them anytime and we'd have such strong powerful memories of moments we shared together that were just insane mm. and you think that's that's pretty cool and it's it's not something that anybody gets to, to share that. And so I missed that. I thought actually today, three of my young riders, um, they had the, uh, a fitting session. Huh? Like there's this, the, they fitted the new clothes for the 
to already for the new season and when you see and when you see all these jerseys and and, and new stuff uh, this is always what i like and what i still like i i i like uh, um, i'm pretty interesting uh, interested also in 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 in, in, in good closes, huh? uh, even if I, if I if if I don't write that much anymore, but I I will always use good 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 closing, huh? and 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 even as a professional uh, uh, writer, I I bought the best gloves, winter gloves I could get, and um, maybe I don't have to say it uh, could, uh, uh, can can say it too loud, but but I did it actually <laughs> to to have really the, the best gloves huh? when 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 they, when there are those uh, rainy or winter rides huh, where you say ah. Oh, I'm I'm safe for a while. I have the best gloves there there are, and I and I like this part. And this is this is a, a, a little a little thing I miss, you know, when the boys will get their new their new suitcase packed with all the new gear and stuff, and 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 and, and to receive the new shoes and and oh, new glasses. This is a privilege. Huh? And uh, when when you've been uh, professional cycling, always always on top, uh, new gear. Testing uh, sponsors asking, hey, what you think? Uh, you actually also develop, uh, uh, yeah, kind of those things, and this is nice. I mean, I miss being a part of that group. I mean, we got the DS group, and they really, they really took me in, and I'm a part of that group now, and it's it's really similar, but it's not it's not the same as if you're like brothers in arms the way we were. You know, you're kind of sharing in these experiences and like it's in really high intense moments and and when you make it through it together, you know, you can really kind of bond in that sense. You can kind of replicate it in other areas, but it's it's not going to be the same as when you're when you're out there in the trenches fighting in the crosswind and like you know like this is my wheel i have to fight for this wheel and like the wheel in front is fighting for the guy behind and like you can't replicate that and then you get on the bus afterwards and even though you had just risked your life and you you're able to kind of laugh about it afterwards <laughs> and, and kind of almost make light of it and you hated it when you were doing it but when you laugh about it after the fact you, you're just like he was like, "Oh man, I, I nearly lost my life there. That was crazy!" Like, and it was—I was, saw that. I was like, "Dude, you, you front braked it. Your ass went up in the air, and then I don't know how you got it back down. But I'm glad you're still here with us." And it's just funny. <laughs> I don't know why what was funny about it, but like it—it's something you can't replicate. I would see the guys like at the Welta at the dinner table, like sharing those stories. And I, I was at the other, at the staff table, and I got to tell you that first night when I, when I first got to the Vuelta, I go to the buffet, and I pass the riders table, and they're like making room for me. He's like, "Hey, come sit here, TJ." And I'm like, "I can't, guys. I got to keep walking." Walk through yeah. the staff table, man. I got my armpits were like so sweaty. It felt like I was good Neo Pro going to my first training camp. Well, there we have it. I hope that was just as interesting for you guys as it was for me and in many ways very therapeutic for me recording that over the whole year but especially listening back on it at this point of my career or at this point in this year as I move on to that next phase. I don't know Lionel, was it somewhat interesting for you or somewhat insightful? What do you think of it? I thought it was really poignant in places. Uh, the, the comments about realising that you'll never be as good as an athlete as you were when you were a pro. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? But 
it's something that you have to adjust to. Um, you all have to adjust to not being as good. You know, sort of the gap closing between yourself and the mere mortals. You know, if you're out on, uh, I don't know, corporate rides or sportive rides as an ex-pro, you know, that gap will be a little bit smaller than perhaps it is at the moment. That was interesting. And I also, when David Miller, I think it was, said, you might not be as good at anything as you were as a professional athlete and you know that's really putting into place putting into context uh, you know the, the the sort of the peaks and pinnacles of an athletic career um, and then what comes after it and an athletic career is short compared to you know the the rest of life that uh, unfolds after retirement and I think listening to people who've gone through that process and seeing how they processed it themselves and and come to terms with it in a way almost mourning the, the loss of their athletic career, embracing a kind of honeymoon period and then going, ah, oh, now this isn't the off season. This is life. I thought it was really, it was really interesting. So I'm not surprised that you, you took a, a lot from it and hopefully it will help you over the next few weeks and months. Cause I'm sure, you know, it won't be all plain sailing. You know, there's so much of all of your sense of identity wrapped up in being a professional athlete. And, and then one day you're not, it's quite a, it's not something that most people have to confront really in their working life. That's exactly right. And it was just, it was very insightful for me, very helpful for me, even just the simple things of just the memorabilia or just being able to put a smile on my face in normally a crappy moment in, in a crappy race. I was just like, you know what, this is, this is it. I'm never going to be, I actually remember the moment in Bellinux tour crosswinds first day rain was coming in on the side and I just went this is actually quite cool I'm with the best people the best riders in the world going toe to toe on the best possible equipment flying along at 60k an hour and weirdly I was able to transition that myself and enjoy that because I took out of that speaking to David early in the year saying you, you're never going to be the best at something again in your life and I just sort of was able to enjoy that I was like well I mostly enjoy this final moment of being the best at something because the rest of the time I'm just going to be good old crappy Joe Blow, you know? So it, it was funny how well that works, you know, and that, that, that turning motivation, I know that wouldn't last any other time, but for this year I was able to really enjoy some tough, gritty moments. But on the flip side, the world opens up and a whole lot of new opportunities uh, may present themselves. And when you're not held back in a sense by your duty and obligation to yourself and to your career as a pro athlete you know there might be some really interesting avenues to explore i reckon you've probably got a reasonable future as a podcaster mitch you've turned out to be not too bad at this <laughs> well that's that's the thing lionel and you know this will be the last podcast that life in the peloton will be under the umbracket of the cycling podcast but it feels like I'm retiring from that realm because you've taken me from the amateur world. You said, look, we've heard your podcasts. Welcome to the pros. Come into our team. And I was on the pro team. And you know what? I, I'd served my two years. And I didn't get re-signed. And it was like, right, it's time for me to move on. And I said, I'm going to go out on my own. I've got more time now. And essentially, I'm going to try and recreate what we've been able to create the last two years. And I have a stab at it again on my own with everything I've learned from being under the umbrella of the cycling podcast. Um, 
I'm a bit scared, I have to admit, because the level, in my opinion, the bar has been raised so high and the podcasts two years ago were a different breed. I love doing them, but they were very raw and very, um, like I said, very raw. There's no, no other word. And I've loved my experience I've had working with you guys um, and our friendship I know will continue, but we're going to be going separate ways next year. Life in the Peloton will be back out on its own and trying to put out a few podcasts. I don't know how it's going to work with me not being in the Peloton, but that's something I've got to work out in the next few months. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Mitch. I mean, your podcast was was already good when we uh, joined forces. I'm glad you think that we've helped you explore some different dif- different directions. It's been a fantastic couple of years for us, and some of your episodes have been absolutely top draw. And I really feel like we've ended on a high, particularly with your Road to Roubaix episode last time, and and this one exploring the theme of retirement. Um, I just hope you enjoy life after the Peloton and I'll be listening out. I'm looking forward to hearing what you get up to in the next phase. And I hope you know that you'll always be a best friend of the cycling podcast. Thanks, guys. And thanks everyone who's enjoyed the listening to it, who were cycling podcast fans and were forced to listen to my episodes. And now they're like, you know what? I don't mind listening to these episodes. I've loved the feedback from everyone and appreciated everyone from my little crew coming across and discovering the cycling podcast as well. It's been a fantastic little match, match made in heaven. And let's see what happens next year. Life in the Pelzon will continue. The cycling podcast will definitely continue. And guys, until the next time, thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.